This episode is sponsored by Furniture Box. Check them out in the description below. Welcome to The Ground Floor, the podcast where we ask successful people exactly how they did it. Our guest today is Tristan Thomas. He's the ex-VP of Monzo Bank and is now the founder of Packfleet, which is a delivery solutions company that offers state-of-the-art technology, which basically focuses on carbon-neutral delivery solutions. Uh, Tristan himself is on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list and Campaign's Power 100 list and Marketing Week's Top 100 as well. So quite the accomplished guy. So yeah, Tristan, thanks for being here, man. Thank you for having me. No problem. Uh, we had to we finally got it back in the diary uh, because the train strikes messed up the last one so Tristan kindly came down and we had to reschedule but to the new studio yes the new studio. Yes. Uh, exactly. we haven't even addressed that we yes. haven't no, let's take a minute first, yeah. let's take a minute this is the first moment in the new yeah. studio uh, so dude it's an honour to have you here to be the first guest man um, yeah, that's great. so yeah for anyone that doesn't know you if you could just take a kind of minute or two to explain sort of who you are what you're about and, uh, and what Packfleet is yeah sure so I run Packfleet uh, I started it about two years ago now um, really out of frustration with the delivery industry you know I received packages as a as a recipient as a consumer uh everything from package in my recycling bin that then got taken away mm. the next day so i never saw it um all the way to sort of chucked over my fence or um left in the rain that was always very very frustrating and um back in lockdown back in 2020 um I ended up starting a wine subscription sort of hobby project, basically to get myself cheap wine during lockdown to keep going. Um, And so we were sending wine out across the UK. And so uh, I worked with a bunch of logistics providers and couriers uh, from the merchant side and saw what a bad experience it was there as well. And that um, seeing that from both sides, this sort of broken uh, industry made me, um, I mean, frustrated and it felt like technology could improve it. Um, and that sat in the back of my mind for a year or so before I then started what became Packfleet. At the time, I was, um, as you said, still at Monzo. Uh, and so once I'd finished up there, I then started playing around with what became Packfleet. I'm with you. And I saw you went straight into Monzo out of, uh, out of university, didn't you? Yeah, basically. I um, I left university, spent a year and a bit in Egypt, um, studying Arabic and, and doing a bit of work, um, and then moved back to London and, and basically thought, I want to join a startup. Okay. Uh I'd spent most of my teenage years reading Hacker News and playing around with sort of projects on the internet. And so, um, yeah, I thought, okay, let me find a startup. So I went on workinstartups.com, uh, as you do, yeah. and applied for a few random startups. And, and Monzo was uh, the first to offer me a job, and I accepted it straight away. Interesting. Great, a job. Okay. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anything um, other than crippling unemployment is fine with me. Yeah, I really, yeah. I, I, you know, I didn't really at the time have a good understanding of how it worked. I had a few interviews lined up, but um, interviewed with them first, and they offered it. So I just, I actually accepted on the phone when she called to offer oh, it to okay. me. And she's like, do you want to think about it at all? And I was like, nope. Should I think about it? <laughs> yes, yes, I'll think about it. And yeah. then I walked around yeah. thinking about it for three hours and then called back and accepted. Okay. Um, and that was to run their, their community. So for us to think about, this was sort of pre-Monzo cards. We hadn't got a product out in the wild yet. But How big was Monzo at this point? Mm, we had zero customers and 12 employees. Oh, wow. Something okay, like so right at the um, But they knew, and we knew right from the beginning, that we wanted to build it in... A different way both from a technology and product point of view but also in a how do we interact with customers in our community mm. um so i joined as community manager and really thinking about how do we open up this world of banking that has historically been very very opaque um and that started with social media then it was sort of hackathons um then crowdfunding and a whole bunch of other stuff uh and and as with many uh, startup stories um then spent the next five years or so doing a huge variety of roles and ending up running mm. marketing and, and community and policy and a few other areas 
Wow. What, um, what do you think working at a startup taught you that maybe working in a larger corporate wouldn't? For anybody um, listening that's maybe thinking of joining a startup. I think for me it was that, um, well, a couple of things. One is that, um, and I've taken this into Packfleet as well, that um, you often coming to problems not knowing anything about them is the best way to approach it. You have this sort of uh, naivety and optimism of saying, yeah, why, why can't we build a new bank? Or, yeah, why can't we take on DPD and Royal Mail? Um, and I think you need some of that like stupidity, frankly, yeah. to, to be able to do it. And, and knowing that actually, broadly, out of most topics in the world, you can get up to speed on most things very, very quickly. Um, mm. Spend a bunch of time and a bunch of effort and a bunch of energy mm. and you can learn about them. Yeah. Um, and that is true for most careers in this world. Um, probably not true for, you know, being a lawyer. Although also a bit true for being a lawyer. There's just sort of um, other other restrictions on becoming a lawyer um, for good reason. And I think Monzo and, and startups in general have taught me that, that you can affect change without needing to necessarily have all of the qualifications or all of the processes mm. or all of the steps. I think it's definitely a, an element to kind of breaking things and figuring things out as you go and just you know i can't remember who it was but someone was saying like the more the further along i get the more i realize that everyone is kind of like just figuring it out yeah there's this amazing quote that i'm gonna butcher but um one of the collison brothers uh, the stripe founders um talks about which is basically that when you look around this world and you see you know amazing buildings or amazing companies or amazing projects or charities or whatever all of these none of these things existed before they're not natural you don't just suddenly appear out of nothing. And that is somebody or some people's passion project thing that they've committed all of their time and money and effort mm. into. And that's what gives us these majestic, amazing things. Um, mm. and, and remembering that of like, actually, everything has to come out of nothing in, yeah. in that sense. Uh, yeah. And I think it is most true for startups. Yeah, definitely. In terms of the delivery solutions, um, obviously, you had all these frustrations, which yeah. I think a lot of us do have. I mean, like, I mean, it's a nightmare getting packages. I mean, I mean, even the amount of stuff we've had to do to get this studio set up. I mean, it's like, you know, you, they give you a window and then it's not in the window and then the end of the window comes. And then if they do buzz, they'll buzz for like, they're there for a second. A second before yeah. they run away. And then they yeah. go. And it's funny because I spoke to a friend of mine and he used to be a delivery driver. I can't remember who it was for. I think maybe maybe Hermes or something like that. Mm. And I remember he was saying to me the other day, he had a package that he wanted to give to someone and he said, I'm just going to take it to her personally. Uh, I think it was like a Valentine's Day thing. And yeah. I was like, oh, why don't you just like get it delivered? And he's like, nah, because I used to be a delivery driver and I know how it goes. And I'm like, yeah. what's the issue? And he's like, oh, they'll just card you immediately. He's yeah. like, they, they don't give a fuck about your product. They will literally just get there, buzz the door. And if you're not there in five seconds, they'll just throw a card because they want to get on the route quicker. Yeah. Um, so in terms of what you're doing, for people that don't know, what are actually kind of the main differences between how you do it and how the industry already exists? Yeah, so at, a, at its core, we think about how do we leverage technology to stop all of those problems, right? How do we make it from a, an experience point of view and a product experience point of view, like ordering a delivery or getting your Uber, um, rather than this experience of sort of ordering something, nothing turns up and then a card comes through your door. Mm. So that's a mobile web experience where you can see a live map of where the driver is with an ETA that's actually correct and then that you can control as well. So you can change the time and day and address and all of these things. Um, from the merchant side, it's all of those same things that we don't see as recipients, but again, giving them visibility and control. What I found with this sort of wine subscription was um, delivery companies would deliver broken parcels and broken bottles to customers. And I would only find okay. out when the end customer got yeah. in touch to say, 
hey, like there's wine and broken glass everywhere. Mm. Um, and again, so building that in from a merchant point of view to give them visibility and control of it. And then, and then the third piece that, that brings that all together is how do you do the same thing for drivers? So the reason, you know, Hermes drivers especially, um, recently rebranded to Every to get away from the bad reviews, mm. uh, have to... Is that why they did it? Because I've yeah. noticed Every. Yeah, I keep seeing Every recently. Yeah. And I just realized, yeah. Yeah, unsuccessfully that's... it turns out. Because uh, <laughs> it's more than just branding. But, um, yeah. you know, they, they have very, very high targets to hit and they get paid per parcel. And so their incentives really are not aligned with yours or the, or the merchants. And so for us, it's about how do we build a technology to enable them to deliver quickly? Um, that's routing and uh that sort of thing and then how do we align incentives so that they're incentivized to deliver a great experience mm. and all of that comes together to hopefully build a build a sort of delivery courier that is 10 times better um and then long term think about actually exactly that problem that you just said how as a consumer do i start accessing this how do we unlock um consumer to consumer deliveries and make it really really easy and slick and so so that the best answer is not to go and deliver it yourself mm -hmm. and and the best example here is like the number of times that i or a friend have had to order an uber to send something across town because that is the best way to do it you yeah know, a set of keys that my partner's forgotten at home it's incredibly it's like, that is the most exactly i've got yeah, a driver and yeah, a car that are literally coming to me just yeah. to deliver it and it's, it's crazy yeah, yeah, yeah and so long term thinking about how do we unlock that and give give everyone the ability to move anything from a to b I'm with you. one of the things i'm always curious about with a model like yours is how do you get the initial it sort of feels like a chicken and the egg situation in terms of like how do you get a driver to deliver for you if you don't get a business but how do you get a business yeah. if you don't have a driver like that that whole conundrum how do you get sort of the initial thing going that's what stopped me for quite a long time i mean I, i was still at monzo so i was sort of thinking about this this problem and it always seemed like a quite an, like insurmountable problem um and you know actually the the business works as you get more and more volume and when you start you have nothing um the way i started was uh by fibbing i guess um basically i said Fake okay you make i actually want to see if this works and um so i emailed two or three uh local merchants and just pretended we were up and running i said hey we're a new courier we're gonna deliver here's our prices and i guarantee would we'll, you know not break your stuff basically and it was other wine and beer merchants because they were most similar to what i already knew um i emailed about five and two replied instantly saying yes we'll, we'll try it um Uh, at that point, I was like, okay, shit, now I need something. Were there any barriers um, at that point then? Because that sounds like a relatively straightforward No, because it's so to go through. through. Like, right, if, yeah. um, and, and specifically for like wine, beer, fragiles, it's, it's most, the most broken experience yeah. because everything gets broken all yeah. the time. Um, and so really they, they didn't need any convincing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so they said, yes, we'll come on board and, and we'll use you. Um, so I then had to spend a week uh, frantically trying to build a very basic product for them to, to upload their orders into. Um, I used Bubble, which is like a no-code tool, uh, okay. to build that and then convince my brother-in-law to come and um, live with me and do some deliveries, uh, which he did quite well. And then he crashed, yeah. crashed the car, so that wasn't ah. so good. But don't worry about that yeah, exactly. um so then once it's once it's you and your brother how does it get to the point where because that's the, that's the other thing that mm. i think about um where it's the same thing where we had um, mario leppo the founder of fireway pizza mm -hmm. um similar thing where he was doing deliveries in the beginning and things yep. like that what i don't understand is if there's let's say two deliveries that need to go out at the same time maybe they're different routes in different directions how do you do it so that you don't end up making one really late or one on you know that's the logistical side of it that, that i've always been confused by yeah so i mean now it's 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 technology right um yeah. uh, and at the time it was just um convincing more random people to drive so i got my neighbor to start driving i was out doing deliveries um very very inefficient to start with right now we can think about um we went and 
and took the sort of rubbish that I'd built, uh, got rid of it, and then built the technology stack from the ground up. Everything from uh, the app that our drivers use all the way through to routing. Um, and that means that from a technology point of view, we have an understanding of um, where is each parcel, what time does it need to be delivered, and what sort of flex is there in there, and an understanding of the cost of that as well. And so if two people want a parcel delivered at yeah. the same time or want to change the times, we can actually understand that and show that to them and either increase prices or, or increase okay. the time to make it better. So is it a thing in your industry where you know how uh, like Uber drivers, they drive Uber, but they also drive Bolt, and yep. in America they also drive Lyft. Is it a thing where your delivery drivers are also Hermes delivery drivers or DPD delivery drivers? Do you, do you all sort of share from a kind of ride-sharing kind of pool, so or is it we don't. yours? Um, we directly employ all of our drivers right okay. um and that is because well two reasons um one is i think it's the right thing to do mm-hmm. um and the second is that you get much better quality yeah and so uh that is one of the challenges that hermes have um they mm. are all self-employed drivers that get paid per parcel and, and that's it and that's what when i talked earlier about aligning incentives so our drivers are you know they come to us they get a salary they get um all of the benefits that we give them and they really right. care about and bought, are bought into what we're doing as a company yeah right. and so then we can go out and they can um you know go out and, and do deliveries and and actually care about how those deliveries work mm. how quickly they are because that also matters to us as a as a business and sort of um act as act as employees as part of them and how do you maintain quality control then among your drivers I mean, in the same way that you maintain quality control generally with employees, right? You have targets and goals yeah. and, and you communicate them clearly. For people who aren't performing, you let them know and, and help them to get up to that level. Um, and then after, over time, if people aren't performing long term, mm. then you obviously have to let them go. Um, but it's a much easier conversation and a much more adult and human conversation to have with people who are who are your employees and your yeah. really working together it's just like hiring office staff for that, sure. from that point of view and so for anyone that doesn't know in terms of funding how much money is required to start up a business like this and and how did you get that get that funding yeah so we've raised uh nine million pounds so far um we raised a one million pound pre-seed a few months after um that sort of initial start and then about uh nine months later raised our eight million pound seed. at what point did you raise the one million sort of pre-seed um so it was a couple of months uh we'd been going uh, i was driving my brother-in-law was driving my neighbor was driving and we had some early signs that there was something here um we had businesses coming on board still very very small um and we were doing deliveries on an ongoing basis okay. um and at that point i went out to to raise pre-seed funding um and and then went out and hired a team after that and um so the sort of pre-seed from that point of view was really predicated on there's a market here. We know this is a massive, massive market. Yeah, everyone gets deliveries and that's growing quickly. Um, we think that Tristan has something here that is interesting. Um, and, and finally, we think that Tristan can hire good people and build a team around him. Um, and so that's what I did. And then my two co-founders, Hugo and Josh, both from Monzo, came and came and joined, and then we built out the team from there. Do you have any opi- uh, sort of advice or opinions on uh, on actually raising funding and pitching? Because I think that's quite a big thing. We haven't had a chance to really go too much into that with some of our other mm. guests because they didn't always fund um, or raise in that in that way. But uh, I think a lot of people would be curious to know about the pitching process and how that works and how you best convince people to give you. I mean, it's a lot of money we're talking about. Yeah, uh, scary amount. It's um. The thing I hate most about being a founder, uh, because you are, especially in the very early stages, you're putting yourself out there and basically asking people to believe in you. Mm. Um, and you get a lot of no's. Uh, and even though both of our rounds have actually been been very easy in inverted commas and straightforward, um, you still get no's. And, and that is a quite emotionally challenging mm. uh, point, because at that point, people are saying, no, I don't believe that you can do this personally. Mm. Um, and, and really, then it's about... Um, 
you know you need you need a few there are a few prerequisites i guess that are that are um necessary not necessarily sufficient but necessary for raising funding so um a market uh you need to be in a market that works for venture capital um and so that basically needs to be a big market uh where there's money to be made you need a team um or at least there's the signs that you can build a strong team um and specifically something within that team that shows that you have an edge over everyone else um what is special about you um and then some evidence that um that you can execute at early stages that's uh obviously much a, a much lower bar than at later stages those are the sort of key conditions i think that mm. are important um that are necessary and then you have to go out and raise a process um, sure. and run a yeah. process and you talk to a uh, you know, hundred firms whittle okay. them down like a funnel and, and go yeah. from there and what were the main reservations from the vcs that you spoke to um, a couple of things. W- one was, uh, what do you know about logistics? Okay. Um, which uh, is true and fair um, and really comes back to that point that I, that I talked about originally, that I think coming in with a fresh uh, view is, is useful. Um, and we see that over and over again now. We obviously hire tech people, we hire logistics people, and um, often is a big struggle to get logistics people to say, you know, what else could you do or could you do things in a different way? Um, and And the second is, there are many VCs and, and firms out there that will only invest in software companies. We are an operationally heavy company. We go and do deliveries. We have vans. We have drivers. Um, there is a huge market here, and we believe that is how we take that market. But um, if you want to invest in software with 95% plus margins, then then you're not going to invest in something like mm. that. Fleet. What's it like having having that much money invested in your idea? Because I feel like that's quite a lot of pressure. I mean, we're I mean, with our studio business, for example, we're self-funded. Mm. Um, but I mean, I can imagine that when you when you have other people's money um especially when it's you know seven figures i mean i don't know i feel like that that might keep me up a little bit at night with the pressure of like i gotta make this work what's that like yeah like uh terrifying broadly i think would be the way i describe it um i go backwards and forwards on it i go um at one extreme terrifying what are we doing like we've raised all this money we um it's just a, you know, a crazy amount of money. And it's still a relatively small amount of money in the VC world, but a crazy amount of money um, for us. And then on the other side is, um, you know, the v- VCs invest money. This is their job. They know what they're doing. This is a tiny amount of the, the VC capital that's out there. Um, no pressure. Mm. And it's sort of broadly try and end up somewhere in the middle of that, um, yeah. which I think is probably the healthy healthy place. But um, yeah, it definitely... It's, and actually now that pressure grows over time, not just because of the money you raise, but now we have a business that employs 100 people yeah. um, and, and a team and, and merchants and customers. You know, mm. Right in those early days, I thought, okay, I'll give this a go for a month or two, um, see if there are legs and see if this works. And if it doesn't, then the worst thing that happens is, mm. is you know, they have to go back to DPD or whoever they're using. But now we have people who switched everything to us, you know, okay. small businesses that yeah. use us for their whole operations from a logistical wow. delivery point of view. So. Um, I'm curious, how did you actually value the business when you were first going out for that pre-seed mm. investment? Because um, I know that's something that a lot of founders do struggle with when yeah. they're going out to raise money. Yeah. Um, so we we got a lead investor um, who basically sets the valuation um, as Entree Capital. Um, like broadly the way I approach it, and, and the same is true for uh, uh, seed and, and later, is um, you know how much money you need. Um, or want and you don't want to give up too much of the business like broadly you want to aim for about 20 percent um 25 would be not great but okay 15 would be great um somewhere in the middle like a really really hot founder could maybe raise at 10 percent last year probably not this year um and that really gives you a pretty clear valuation range um so you just you just base it on that really right 
Right. Okay. So if you need to raise five million and yeah, you yeah. want to give away twenty percent, then yeah, you do the maths from there. I'm with you. Um, so once you actually raise this money, then what was the what was the process of allocating it? Uh, well, at the time it was me, um, and all of the packages were coming out was sitting in my living room, which my partner was not very happy about every night. Um, and yeah, it was still under small numbers; would be like twenty five. But twenty five packages in a living room actually takes up a yeah, lot yeah. Of space. yeah, yeah, it's a lot. I yeah. didn't want to stack them because I didn't want to break them, so I would just lay them out on the floor, and there would be like a path to the sofa, <laughs> an obstacle uh, course essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Um, so she wasn't very happy about that, and um, so really it was about building the team and building the operations. Um, and and so first of all, that was my co-founders coming on board, and then our very small initial team. Um, we grew to a team of about five people in the first six months or so and just quickly you mentioned your co-founders they, they were also ex-monzo yeah so did you was it a thing where you had to kind of convince them to come on board or were they pretty much like they were looking for to start their own thing or join something else themselves um, or? a combination of both um they they were both ready to leave and and thinking about what was next um but uh also you know at the time had to i think not necessarily convince them they're co-founders co and came on board, but we had to work through what, what does this look like in mm. the future and, and why right. is it exciting? What was um, what was Tom's the founder Monzo? What was his reaction to to you wanting to to leave with a couple of employees to start a business? Um, yeah, I, know, I know he's invested in your business subsequently, yeah. but I was curious to know how that actually worked. Well, um, so he left at a similar time. He left about a, a few months before I finally left. Um, I talked with him a lot about leaving and at the time i left monzo i didn't know what i wanted to do it wasn't to start pack fleet um oh so you left was... without anything yeah okay oh okay yeah, yeah, i yeah. thought so you I left to start no, i left sort of six or seven months before right. wow um, so so for about six months you left monzo and you were kind of just planning your next move yeah i spent a couple of months um recovering from high growth startup world yeah. uh i had big dreams i've got camper van so i was going to take it around europe uh and then boris announced another lockdown so uh, i spent it sort of fixing door handles at home uh and it was very nice um and then really spent the next few months figuring out what i wanted to do i did some consulting started playing around with a few ideas um that i'd had as well and at the time i just really didn't know did i want to s go back into the startup world and therefore either start a startup or join one um or did i want to sort of go and do consulting and 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 build a sort of career there or did i want to go and do something totally different um and I don't think I really ever decided, but I ended up doing Pack Fleet and, mm. and that sort of took off and we went from there. Um, so Did still you, to be solved. When you were kind of coming up, uh, even sort of, I don't know, I guess a teenager or at uni, did you always know you, you kind of wanted to be an entrepreneur at any point? I'd always done projects. Yeah. Uh, I've got a folder called um, Graveyard on my computer that's like got 30 different random things that I started in there. Um, most of them were, all of them were terrible uh, and uh, broadly very unsuccessful. Um, but I'd always done that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And I don't know if I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I think there's like a, there's something weird about entrepreneurism. That it's not like a career that you say, yes, I want to be that people. Mm. I think um, sort of either go into it uh, or end up in it doing it um, or not. And it's not the same as a sort of normal career path from that point of view. So I didn't, didn't think, I didn't think you could be decide to be an entrepreneur. It was like, yeah, as a kid when people said I want to be a businessman mm. or a businesswoman it's like oh, okay that doesn't really tell you anything yeah do anything how much of how much of entrepreneurialism do you think is like nature versus nurture because there are some people where you, you're like you are just an entrepreneur like there yeah. is no you are never going to fit in a company ever because you're just too much of an entrepreneur and then there's other people where you know, you meet them and they have businesses and you're like huh I don't know if I would have pegged you mm. as uh, as an entrepreneur if I hadn't known that you were already doing something. Hmm. What, do you, what do you think about the kind of nature versus nurture argument on that? 
Yeah, my sense is it's like 60% nature, something like that. Like, I think people need to have that basis of um, either being frustrated at the way things are and want to fix them or this belief that they can do something new or um, or, or maybe just some non-conformism that means they can't do anything else. Um, and then and then on top of that is, is the nurture. It's like, for me, being at Monzo was an incredible experience because mm. you see that from 10 to 1,500 employees and, and, and sort of basically go to university of, of um, startups from that point of view. Um, but I think it is not everyone can or should be an entrepreneur. Um, I think that's that's totally fine. Mm. What do you think it takes to make a successful entrepreneur? Mm, luck, mainly, I think. Um, really? Yeah, l- luck. Uh, well, I mean, how long have you got? I guess you break it down from the beginning. Um Probably number one is some level of privilege that you can take time out to work on your idea or um, fund it in some way or know that you have a safety net to do that. Um, That's, I think, the biggest limitation for entrepreneurism uh, today. Um, So some level of privilege. Then uh, luck sort of threaded throughout it. Luck that you um, know the right people or can hire the right people or end up in a market conditions that works well. Um, And uh, I think... The thing that that is most controllable for an individual probably is um, like pig headedness, uh, like this belief that you can do it, and so you just push through everything. Uh, naivety, do you think? Yeah, like a combination of naivety. Like the nice words are like confidence yeah, and yeah. bullishness, and yeah, the, yeah, the bad yeah. words are like naivety and pig headedness yeah. and arrogance and and stubbornness. Uh, I think that combination is probably. Uh, Again, not nece- not sufficient, but necessary to have because that you end up with a million roadblocks constantly. Yeah, yeah. A friend yeah, of mine yeah. said yesterday he's an entrepreneur. He was saying something that I think I've I've thought for certainly thought for a while, which is that like it, in many cases, and I think in a lot of cases, maybe even most, it's a lot better to be you know employee number seven at Microsoft than it is to be CEO of something that's like not going anywhere or mm. you know or is a real you know bitch to get off the ground. Um, or so even like lot, employee, frankly, 300 at Microsoft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, yeah. The, the, the best way to make life-changing money, mm. I think, if that's what you care about, is to join um, startups that are already doing well, but you're early enough that you earn enough equity. And that um, you believe in it enough. Well, I mean, if you if if you only care about money, that maybe that doesn't matter as much. But that's yes, true, from yeah. a, like a, a fulfillment point of view, yeah, yeah. yeah. definitely. Yeah. Um, like most startups fail over time the likelihood of a startup failing goes down not to zero but goes down and so getting one at the right point where you can have no not a guarantee of success but some belief in that success um and you know you do your own work on that as well to figure out whether you whether it is going to be successful or not but you're early enough that you can still get a meaningful chunk Mm. that's by far the best way to do it. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a second to talk about our sponsor for this episode, Furniture Box. Furniture Box is an online furniture retailer that makes awesome products for everywhere from your bedroom to your office. Now we actually had Monty and Dan, the co-founders on our show. That's how we met. We loved their story and we hung out with them afterwards and we knew that we wanted to work with them. And here's the thing. One of the biggest issues I have whenever I've ordered furniture in the past is that certain big name furniture companies, not naming any names, will charge you a fairly large fee for delivery. And even then 
that delivery usually takes a few days, if not longer. With Furniture Box, not only do they offer free next day delivery, but they're now planning on extending their delivery cutoff even more so that you can literally order a dining set as late as 8 p.m. and be eating dinner on it the next day. So to put it simply, there's no one in the UK furniture scene that's doing anything like what they're doing, and we're thrilled to have them as our sponsor. So click the link in the show notes and check them out. Now back to the episode. What are your thoughts on work-life balance like in the early stages? Because there is this kind of hustle culture at the moment. Um, and there is also an, you know, an argument to not burn out. Yep. Um, nobody wants that. But then I also think, uh, as I think uh, James and I have both realized, there is also an upfront thing where when you are starting something new, you kind of do have to get to burn out or maybe even past that point because there just is so much to do in such a short space of time. So you kind of have to push and you don't really get the luxury of a work-life balance initially at least what do you what do you think about that yeah i i broadly agree maybe not about the sort of pushing past burnout part but um i think the way i think about it is you can't have balance in in at the early stages so you can't go and do a nine to five or have fixed hours um because sometimes you'll have to be up all night for seven nights Mm. As we've, as we've uh, learned, as we've experienced <laughs> building, yeah. building a studio yeah, or whatever yeah, it is and, yeah, and yeah. that is just a fact and that is necessary to get there um, what is important and uh, having been through like very light burnout at Monzo is taking the time as well to, mm. to recharge um, and so what I try and do is work really really hard and then also take a break and figure out some time um, and I think that is the balance rather than sort of every day should be balanced. It's like, how do you balance it across six months or a year or something like that? You accept that sometimes we're going to be really, really busy. Um, but I think most people cannot work at full capacity constantly. I'm mm. sure there are some people mm. who can. Uh, I'm, not one yeah, of the, yeah, yeah. I'm not one of those people. Uh, and so I know I need to have a break. And whether that's taking some holiday or having some time out or going uh, away is, um, is, is how I try and do it. And, and just like constantly doing that. Constantly what sort of expectation do you put on employees at Packfleet in relation to that? Um, like a, a sort of 10% of that, I guess. Um, similarly, like you are an early stage employee. We are giving you large chunks of equity. Hopefully also you believe in the mission of what we're doing. Sometimes we'll have to work late, um, but we'll also make it up to you. So mm. if you work late, we'll make sure that you get the time off. And I think that is the right balance. Um, at some point, and I saw this at Monzo, you the type of company you are changes and the type of people who are joining change and the people who join a later stage more clearly going to be successful company tend to a care about like day-to-day work-life balance much more um and that's not a bad thing it's like you know you've got kids or you've got family and that's how you you do it um are probably less happy about risk both personal and professional risk um, and that combination makes them right for that stage of company, but not for an early stage company. And I think being really clear on that with early stage employees is important because otherwise it just won't line up. It's like, mm. it, it just doesn't work. Do you have any tips or uh, advice on hiring? I think that's quite a big thing that a lot of people struggle with because I think there's a there's a lot of value in picking the right talent. Um, what, do, what do you think? Um, I I mean, I agree on, on value. I think fi- finding the right people is key. What, and the way we did that, um, for your first few hires is to go and you basically want to minimize the risk of each hire as much as possible. Mm. Um, and the best way to do that is to hire people that you've worked with before, ideally. Um, the next level is to hire people who people you know have worked with before. And then sort of third is maybe like general recommendations from people. Um, and all of those are going to be better, not necessarily going to be better, going to be less risky than going out to the open market. 
Um, and so that's the way we approached it. Our first employee was someone we worked with at Monzo. Our mm. next employee was uh, their a recommendation of theirs, um, and and vice and and so on. And so for our first ten employees, they were you know one of those concentric circles um, out from from us. Uh, there are downsides to that as well, from a diversity point of view, from a like openness to the market perspective, from an opportunity perspective. But you minimise risk from those in, from those employees coming on board. Mm. Um, at some point, you run out of people that yeah, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, either the companies you've worked for before get annoyed, or um, or uh, the people you're trying to get recommendations from get annoyed, and then you go out. Um, but by then, you've laid the foundations and the groundwork, and yeah. that for us is it was great because we can minimise risk, we can short circuit a lot of the like early on you spend time on culture and what sort of company do we want to build and we could skip a lot of that because we already knew each other and worked together and could just basically sure. import a bunch of Monzo's culture yeah. that we knew we liked how um sorry I was just going to say how did you know you were ready to hire people for certain departments hmm yeah good question um differs depending on the on the role some of them was desperation like everything is broken we need somebody here we've been doing it ourselves yeah. for too long that was true for our first operations hire um Nasli, who joined us uh she was our, our fifth hire ever up till then we'd been doing it you know three three co-founders and, and robin who was our first engineer and we just rotate everyone would do a day on operations each each day um and and at some point we got to the scale where we're like okay we really need someone who knows what they're doing um and and this doesn't work very well when we're doing it so hiring her was amazing from that point of view um so that's the sort of necessity bracket or category, I guess. Um, another category is like uh, expertise and skill. Um, we did that for our first uh, or for our sales hires and we've just hired a COO. And that's where you can say, we recognize we do not have the experience or expertise in this area. Let's go out and find people who do so that we can bring that in um, and sort of upgrade us uh, overnight. Um, so that's a necessity, expertise and skill. Um, and then probably you have like opportunistic. Sometimes you, you find someone who's just amazing. You want to figure out a way to get them in. Um, and I think early stage startups are the only time you can do that. It just doesn't work at a large business to say, Hey, I want to hire this person. I don't know where they should go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and some of our best hires at Monzo and at Packfleet have been people like that. It's like, they're really smart and good at everything. And we don't really know where they're going to go, but mm. come and join and we'll mm. figure it out. AI is obviously in a really crazy place right mm. now with uh with you know chat GPT moving at a million miles a minute and everything going going in that direction. I mean, literally just this morning. I mean, this terrified me. This I was, was terrifying. I showed I, me this yeah, actually. I showed it to the to the boys this morning, but uh I I my friend sent me um sent me a song and he said uh and he said yeah. this is a this is a Drake and the Weekend song because we were talking about AI music yesterday mm -hmm. and he was like this is a Drake and the Weekend song but it's completely AI made. Now, I knew that but because he said it when he yep. sent it to me and I listened to it and I was like this is insane so I came into the studio this morning and I said oh have you guys heard the new Drake and the Weekend joint and they were like no and I was like oh it slaps and I played it let the whole song play and they were like yeah this is really good it was yeah. so and then, believable and at the end of it I was like yeah that was AI that wasn't them and it's like that is it's terrifying it is, it terrifying. is terrifying especially really if is. you work in content Dude, <laughs> thank, thank God we've just built a studio. <laughs> um, Barney's like packing his thing. Yeah, exactly. um, so basically, on the on the AI point, obviously, since you're such a technology driven company, um, are you implementing AI? Do you have any plans to? And do you see AI affecting your industry either for better or or for worse? Yeah, I think for us, it's really exciting. It's really um, interesting to like zooming out and thinking about us as a startup. Um, at some point when you know especially over the last couple of weeks or months uh i've been talking to a bunch of people and um i'm sometimes quite glad that we work in such a uh 
operationally heavy business like chat gpt cannot do what we do so that's quite nice to know um but building it in and saying we came into this saying technology we believe can improve every part of this logistics operation is a logistics and um and technology problem to solve and we need to get both right and having um machine learning and ai to improve the technology side is, is hugely beneficial we already use it for um, making sure every proof of delivery image that uh, drivers take is up to our standards and good and giving that feedback um, to drivers. Um, and then also rolling it out in a few other areas. But you can imagine like the sorts of things we do, which is we have hundreds of drivers on the road with thousands and tens of thousands of packages uh, to deliver and um, there's traffic and weather affects it and road yeah. clo- like there's all of these things that, that affect it. These are perfect problems for AI to improve itself. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that's why we're spending a lot of time on it. What do you think the most important skill for a for a founder or a CEO is to have, if you could kind of pick one? Um, I think uh, what I was talking about earlier, like uh, confidence slash pigheadedness, mm. like the ability to just keep pushing through mm. every roadblock. Resilience and persistence. Resilience, yeah, yeah that's a much better summary. Yeah. Um, because you get through one barrier or one roadblock and they just get bigger, right? Yeah. Like if, you, if yes, you're successful, uh, <laughs> yes, they do. which is exciting and interesting, but it never ends. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that actually ties back to that work-life balance. You, you know, you push through, you work a bunch, but you also do need to take a break because it will never end. Mm. Um, if you build a company that's the size of Microsoft or uh or google or whatever like the problems just get bigger and bigger yeah, and bigger. yes yeah the question then becomes uh i'm keen to hear your thoughts on this when when do you know that you're just pushing because yeah. that's a business and it's <laughs> and you know what i'm going to say when it's like there's hurdles and hurdles and you're like this is just a business and when it is just it's just not a good enough idea or it's just mm-hmm. not working and how do you differentiate between that because one is delusion and one is persistence but yeah. they are seldom not seen as the same thing yeah good question uh i don't know I mean, uh, I'm part of a few founder and CEO Slack groups and WhatsApp groups, and, and there's a lot of talk about this. You know, like, and, you, and you see both sides of it. Um, one where someone's, at least from the outside, looks like they're just pushing and they're hitting never-ending roadblocks, but they are delusional. That like, It's just like, well, I mean, kind of obvious this isn't going to work. Mm. Um, but then you hear a bunch of stories about founders that have pushed through it. Mm. Um, I don't know. I think it's a very personal question. It's probably, honestly, probably I think comes down to like, when can you not do it anymore? Mm. Um, because at some point it will so negatively impact your mental, physical, financial health that the only option is to stop. That probably is where like not where people should stop but where people do end up stopping because it is that personal question if you could if you could make a sort of sweeping statement or just generalize what do you think entrepreneurs could do before they go in on an idea to help mitigate any risk of it the idea itself not working or prove that there is a Mm. sort of demand for that particular product well i think i mean i think the last part of your question is the answer um well i mean two things so number one the idea itself is not the important thing right it's about um Generally, there are very few novel ideas in this world that companies are built on, especially. Um, And uh, so really not worrying too much about the idea, but thinking like if you think if you want to take a step back and think about it strategically, you want to think is a bit like a VC does basically like is this is there a market here of some sort? Is there a problem that I'm trying to solve? 
Um, and then broadly, how do I get from A to B? How do I like take the problem and solve it and, and get into the big market? Um, and, and if you've got those things, then you'll probably, there is something you can build there. Um, there's an open question as to whether it can be like a profitable company or a successful company, but there's something you can build there. Um, and, and so then the idea itself, like both holding, holding firm to the problem and the market and, but not to the idea so that you can go out and validate the idea itself. And the best way to do that is talking to customers. Right. Mm. Um, and, and for every entrepreneur, I would say as early as possible, try and get customers. Um, when I talk to, especially early stage, very, very early stage people thinking about raising a pre-seed or seed, um, and they've spent six months building a slide deck and a business plan and a bunch of other stuff. It's like, you have no evidence here of market Mm. demand. Um, and that is not great for investors, but also not great for you because to your point, like you could go and spend a lot of time and and there's nothing here. So figure out as early as possible, can you sell something to someone? Or could you at least get them to use it for free? Given that one of your areas of expertise is marketing, Mm. um, do you have any kind of generalized marketing advice for a lot of people? I think everyone at the moment, they're either, I mean, everyone knows, you know, PPC is a great thing to do and uh, everyone's obviously cottoned on to the whole, you know, we need to be on social media, you know, (laughs) that kind of of generic thing. but I think especially if anything now, good marketing advice is needed more than ever because now everyone's on TikTok and everyone knows they have to have like, a, you know, we want to get user generated content and like everyone knows the formula now. So how do you stand out in a world where, you know, content is king, but now everyone knows that content yeah. is king. Everyone's making content. Um, so whether it's to do with content or anything else, do you have any kind of broad marketing advice? Um Number one, and this is maybe similar to the sort of com- starting a company advice. Um, make sure you have a product that works um over and over again i have calls with marketers who have joined a startup or at a startup and they're saying we're doing all of this marketing stuff and none of it's really working um and often their solution is like spend more money or find a new channel or maybe we need to rewrite the creative and 95 percent of the time it's like let's go back and figure out okay do you have a product here that you're the product that you're trying to sell does it work do people like it do you have product market fit do you have at least some happy customers um and 95 percent of the time uh that is the problem not the marketing marketing is very very easy when you have a great product like we had at monzo um very very hard when you don't have a, a good product and there are very few businesses or areas where you can just do marketing and sort of paper over a bad product mm. um and in the ones where that's true and you can it often requires an obscene amount of money and it also lowers your LTV because the customers won't stick around as soon as yeah. they find out the product shit. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, and and like the only way to fake like is to fake it by you know spending hundreds of millions of pounds getting everyone uh, on board and figuring it out as you go. Mm. Um, but like on the whole, that doesn't work unless you've got a mass- massive budget. So starting with the product um, is number one, and then um, figuring out spending your time to get one channel working well. Because again, what I see so often is um, people say, okay, we've got something here. This is good. Right, now we're going to build a marketing strategy. And they're like, right, PPC, social media, Mm. content, like everything. And they're trying to do everything at once. It's like, you are a very small startup that's just going, like, just figure out one channel. Because Mm. one channel will let you scale to hundreds of millions of pounds of revenue. So, like, you you are not going to be limited by the channel unless it's, like, a very specific channel where you I don't know, only target people in Corydon or something. But on the whole, like get one channel working. Yeah. And and again, like most of the time it's not rocket science. Um so work your way down the list. Normally, um, or at least a few years ago, it's like Facebook ads is where you start. 
that is uh, the biggest uh, platform with the most advanced ad uh, targeting and provided you have sort of customers that use Facebook, then on the whole, that is where you should start. And you don't need to get too clever um, in order to work through those as a marketing strategy. Because the alternative strategy is like, do other stuff and hope one of the like hope one of them becomes a viral hit or something like that. That is great if it works, but ninety nine percent of the time it doesn't work. So it's not a great way to build a strategy. Like build the core of it and then spend five percent of your time on the on the crazy stuff. Do you have a preferred strategy or a preferred kind of uh, lin- linear like vertical that you like? I think it really depends on 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 the product and uh, and the customers. Um, again, like. Back in the old days, three years ago, it was is Facebook and Google. That's yeah. like that's where you spend ninety five percent of your money um, to start with, from a performance point of view, at least. Uh, as a now, I'm starting to like feel past it because we never use TikTok, so don't know, yeah. But also, it's, what, it's okay. less relevant to your model, to be fair. To well, you. for us, yeah, totally. Yeah. Like we are, it, it's interesting at Packfleet because we are um, broadly B two B, so we do sales. Um, B2B sales. And then there is a strong consumer angle. We have very um, clearly branded vans and branded drivers and a consumer experience um, that is that is really nice. And, and that's that long-term plan of how do we sort of build consumer to consumer. But um, at its core today, it's a sales plus inbound referral um, growth. Mm. Um, go on, no, go on. I was going to say, I wanted to ask about your thoughts on finding a co-founder versus going alone mm. and how important you think that is. I don't think I could have done what I or we have done without co-founders. Um, I'm very lucky. I have two co-founders that I've worked with a lot before that yeah. I link trust uh, 100% and can be totally open with. Um, and, and so that was the sort of cheat code for co-founders. Um, and so we didn't have to go through the period of like finding a co-founder and like interview, like, you know, getting used to each other or anything like that. But um, yeah, having them has made it, I think I don't. I, I think there would be many times where I just wouldn't have been able to do it, or would have made significantly worse decisions mm. without them. Um, and I kind of didn't believe that at the beginning. You know, I'd always read, you know, Y Combinator prefer, prefers having co-founders, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I was like, well, why is that? Like, can make these decisions. But having been through it, I would never do it without one. Yeah, I'd say we. we no, I definitely, definitely agree with you on that. Definitely yeah, agree we, with you on that. it feels like our mantra at this point. Like someone to just lean on through the hard times. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the that's the key thing. Yeah. I mean, that obviously in finding someone that actually you know sort of reacts well with your sort of skill set mm. and complements it. But yeah, someone to lean on during the hard times. Yeah, someone to talk sure. things through with, who yeah. can balance you out, who can give you the perspective in, yeah. in tough times and give you the perspective in good times. I was about to say, well. exactly, yeah, 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 celebrate like, yeah, the wins yeah. with yeah. you know yeah, yeah, having yeah. someone to be like, we fucking did it. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it makes a difference. Are there any new ideas like in your industry that kind of excite you? Anything that kind of is coming in the near future or that you're kind of working on now in, in your field that you're like this is going to be a big change or um interesting like there are some in the medium or long term that are going to be hugely influential right self-driving cars is one very clear one yep. yeah like drone delivery is another one um they're very very exciting long term not at all exciting short term um and that's an interesting balance to have to deal with uh, how long do you think we're looking at until that's actually feasible <laughs> dude i watched a video this morning uh of a, a guy who was a he's an uber driver and he was in san francisco and he has a tesla with full self-driving beta okay and he literally like he was like i'm gonna do an uber journey i'm gonna be sitting behind it the whole time but i'm not gonna do anything and he put the uber address in for the customer let it and it just got the customers and they were like oh so is this one of those self-driving things he was like yeah and then it just took them to their destination and just the cars doing everything he's okay. just he's there for safety but the entire thing was done yeah, by the car yeah. and i was like that's now wow okay so when so it's maybe like we're closer than we think then okay yeah 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 it's so hard to tell um because it's either like about to happen imminently or 10 to 15 years away yeah. for full self-driving um 
I think very, very clearly we will get to some level of, of decent self-driving on most roads pretty quickly. But the question is, will it be able to do you know, central London constantly yeah. um, and, and deliver packages? Our, our real drivers struggle. Uh, so who knows? Um, so those are really interesting long term, but is it, you, know, you could get very distracted with them short term. Um, mm. And there are a bunch of, you know, Amazon spent a bunch of time doing drone delivery and really is now just a marketing um, gimmick for now, um, but which will revolutionize everything that we do mm. long term um, short term is much more about how do we start to leverage technolo technological advancements like um, machine learning and AI to just massively upgrade the experience and that's where we have such a huge advantage because the people we're competing against are working on tech stacks that have been stuck in the 90s when they were built mm, or sure. maybe the early 2000s if they're lucky and um, they will be looking at AI but it will be like a, a you know oh it'd be you know there'll be a team in their sort of um, R&D department thinking about it whereas we're able to just implement these things straight away wow dude I could I could sit here for another like two hours man this is really <laughs> interesting um, but obviously I'm aware that you know you've got a place to be and it's been really kind of you to kind of give us your time um, just before you shoot off we have one question that we ask all of our guests at the end of an episode um, which is that if there was one piece of practical advice uh, you could give to someone who either has a business or is thinking of starting one uh, what would it be and with the emphasis on practical or actionable so could mm. be advice on hiring marketing budget anything anything that's not you know believe in yourself and work hard kind of thing um, so for someone thinking about starting, my biggest advice is just start, like figure out what is the quickest way you can start something. And actually this is true both for people starting a business, but also people working in startups or, um, earlier stage companies. It's like you can spend all of this time planning, thinking, wondering, just go and start it. Um, again, like if you have the privilege where you have some sort of safety net, the risk is very, very low. Mm. Like, um, you can do it in your evenings or your weekends or, uh, outside of work. And, and just see, can you figure out the very first customer? Can you get someone on board? Can you like, hack around it in some way? Because if you can't do that, you're, you're probably going to come up against so many bigger roadblocks in the future that you're going to struggle against. So like just start mm. um, is, is really on, like, on an ongoing basis the thing that I share with people. Amazing. Very good. Uh, where can people find you, man? Uh, well, the main thing is sign up for Packfleet if, you have a, if you're a merchant. Uh, otherwise, I'm on Twitter as... Uh, uh, Tristan Thomas with no vowels uh, was the best I could do. Bit too Tristan late to Thomas. Tristan, exactly. Um, yeah, that's probably the best. Amazing. Place. Tristan Great, Thomas, thank, thank you. you so much for being here, man. Really appreciate no, it. Thank it you. A pleasure. Uh, guys, if you enjoyed that episode, make sure to like and subscribe, turn on post notifications so you never miss an episode that we've got coming out. And if you are listening on Spotify or Apple as I say this, uh, then please do rate us five stars and leave us a review. Um, we've got plenty of exciting guests coming up. Um, but for now, Tristan Thomas, thank you so much for being here, man. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's good. Take care, guys.